Great. Well, thanks for coming again tonight. Um, last week, for those of you that weren't here, uh, we established um, a couple grounding principles of the theology of the body. So I'm just going to repeat those real quick. Um, first, that the human person is a being who comes to know himself, who comes into the fullness of his identity through community, through an embodied encounter with another human person. Second, due to his specific nature as an intelligent and free being, he can only enter into community through an act of self-gift. His body, because it is physical, serves as a perfect symbol of this self-gift because it alone is capable of making present his invisible spiritual dimension. And lastly, when a person is welcomed, when he is accepted, received by another in his fullness as a gift, only then does that person begin to understand himself to be a gift. Only then does he grasp the fullness of his identity. So we ended last week with an image of man and woman standing before one another in Genesis, naked without shame. This was, as John Paul called it in the theology of the body, an image of a, a perfect union, a mutual giving and receiving between human persons. The first man and woman did not so much see one another's bodies as that they simply perceived one another. Their bodily and spiritual dimensions were bound together in such integrity. The body served as a kind of transparent instrument in that communication of spirit that they enjoyed. So how did things go wrong? It's only a few moments later in Genesis that we find them hiding in the bushes, covering themselves with leaves. Well, believe it or not, mankind's first sin had everything to do with being on the receiving end of a gift. Okay, we talked a lot about gift last week. Adam and Eve struggled to be receivers before God. Consider this. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve had known nothing else but God's total generosity and care for them in the garden. God was the giver of all good things, and in this relationship, they were the grateful receivers. And yet somehow, they struggled to accept they struggled to receive such generosity on God's terms. Remember from last week that to truly receive a gift requires a willingness to accept the gift as it is offered, without setting your own conditions upon it. In the example of the engagement ring that I gave last week, when someone presents you with a ring, you know, and it, the example was that you would um, accept the ring, say, oh, this is gorgeous, but I don't like the setting, so I'm just going to run back to the jeweler and have it put into something nicer. Okay, That's not going to go over well. Why? Because when someone offers you a gift, you don't get to make demands. Take what you want and scrap the rest if you really care about the giver's feelings. With a true gift, with a true gift, we never quite know what we're going to receive. You don't order a gift for yourself. Can you give a gift to yourself? Sometimes we use that terminology, but I don't think it's possible. Okay, and of course, there's that line from Forrest Gump, right? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And that is true with, with an authentic gift. Instead of accepting God's gifts on God's terms, however, Adam and Eve chose to accept the devil's suggestion. And what was the devil's suggestion? that God is not really being loving. He's just merely jealous. That God's command to them not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that this command was not actually for their good, for their protection, but instead it was a way to control them, to manipulate them, so that he could keep all power for himself. Okay, that's accusing God of being jealous rather than generous. Now, this idea, this suggestion that God was not truly generous is totally insupportable in the face of God's track record of complete generosity toward them. Still, our first ancestors chose to accept the lie of the tempter. As John Paul II declared, Adam and Eve questioned the gift in their hearts and the love which was at the source of its donation. 
they chose to believe in that moment of the first sin. They chose to believe that God's relationship to them was not rooted in gift, but in a kind of power play. So in, in you know, what can, what can be described as a grand act of distrust, right? They're not trusting that God is actually being loving with them. In this grand act of distrust, Adam and Eve turned their hearts from God. By grasping for the fruit on their own, they refused God's friendship in favor of taking something that they wanted. There is a radical difference between receiving and taking, right? In both cases, you get something, but there's a world of difference. A receiver accepts a gift gift as a whole. He sets no conditions upon it, but receives it in the fullness in which it is offered. A taker is one who selects that portion of what he desires without any regard for the relationship. This attitude is utterly outside, it's utterly foreign to the dynamic of a true gift. And I do want to emphasize that idea of distrust because when we talked a little bit last week about a gift requiring you know, a free, generous offering and it is completed by a grateful receiving, what really is the glue that holds that dynamic together is trust. Because when someone is offering a gift to another, he's trusting that that gift isn't going to be thrown in the trash. Just as the receiver is trusting that that gift is given out of love and not as something to try to manipulate that person. So trust on both sides. There is trust required of the giver and of the receiver. And it's the glue that holds that dynamic together if it's going to be successful. Okay. So when Adam and Eve responded to God in this way through their disobedience, they estranged themselves from God. That's what happens when a gift goes badly. The relationship that the gift established is deeply wounded. Imagine presenting a loved one with a gift, and he responds, okay, what do you want from me? Right? By suggesting that your gift offered in friendship was really just an attempt to manipulate him, that cuts you to the core. That hurts because it reveals a distrust which is toxic to a relationship. What John Paul notes here is that the moment Adam and Eve separate themselves from God, they separate themselves from each other. The moment they attempt to take rather than to receive from God is the very moment when they will begin to take rather than to receive with regard to one another. And so what we find in the book of Genesis is that Adam and Eve's bodily shame, that sudden need to conceal their bodies from one another, arises at that very moment when sin enters into their hearts. Only then did they suddenly become aware of their bodies before the other. And only then does the body at once become something that seems to sort of obscure communication between them rather than facilitate it, to distract from the other person's inner dimension rather than to reveal it. The peaceful gaze of nakedness without shame is suddenly shattered, and we see the two hiding their bodies from one another with leaves. They do this because they instinctively know their personhood is at risk. That unity of body and spirit that they experienced feels like it's disintegrating. Okay, this instinct to cover up to conceal one's body before the other. And remember, they're not just concealing their bodies before one another. You know, they're covering their bodies with leaves, but they're also hiding in the bushes. So they're hiding from themselves and they're hiding from God. Okay, this occurs, John Paul suggests, because sinful man fails to perceive that the body is the symbol of the person, the communicator of the person's spiritual dimension. Fallen man now is inclined to see what is physical in the person as detached from what is spiritual and is prone to view that physical aspect as some kind of possession, an object to take and enjoy and no longer a properly personal reality, no longer a gift, revealing a spiritual being who is only to be received. You know, again, every gift, no matter how small, has to have that physical dimension, right? A gift is something physical that we give and receive, but it always represents more. 
right? Even if I just give my neighbor, you know, a rose. If that neighbor takes the rose and throws it in my face, I am going to get hurt, okay? Because it is symbolizing something else. It's symbolizing something invisible, okay? So Adam and Eve, in this moment, right, suddenly become prone to see one another and one another's physical dimensions as something detached from that spiritual dimension. And you can't do that. You can't do that with a symbol, okay? But in some way, they do sense it because they somehow, as, as John Paul says, shame has a protective dimension about it. There's some sense in which, while they may feel these inclinations, they also sense, I don't want to be treated as an object, right? I don't want to be looked at, to be viewed this way. And so there's the covering up. Nonetheless, this refusal to receive and the inclination to take is what John Paul calls lust. Now, we usually associate the word lust sort of strictly with a disordered sexual appetite. And John Paul does use it in this way, but he also uses it in a broader sense as well. He uses it to describe the fallen attitude of mankind <laughs> toward God and toward all creation, and that ultimately it's at the heart of every sin. I was looking at the etymology of our, of our English word lust and noticed that it is linked to the word list. When we say that a sail is listing, we mean it is leaning or tending in one direction. The King James Bible tells us the wind bloweth where it listeth. Okay, in this case, when Jesus says this, he's describing the wind as something which is self-directed, a force with a mind of its own, taking what it will. So the term lust is more than just sexual. It is describing an attitude toward all creation, which is the antithesis of gift, because it's a vision that perceives the whole created world as simply a material source of satisfaction, something from which to take, use, and discard. And so the very seeds of that throwaway culture that Pope Francis has coined were planted in Eden. And Adam and Eve, when you think about it, they really made the very error that we witness today. We talked a lot last time about the difference between scientific knowledge or knowledge of objects and knowledge of persons. Okay, Adam and Eve thought they could gain knowledge of God by stealing his secrets, right? They were promised that if they ate the, the apple, they would, they would be like gods, right? They'd know everything that God would know. They thought they could gain knowledge of God by stealing his secrets. That's not how we come to know God because God isn't some object that we can study and recreate in our lab. God is a person. Adam and Eve should have been striving for a deeper personal knowledge of God. But right personal knowledge was that knowledge that comes through relationship, through encounter. It's not the same thing as trying to acquire a scientific knowledge of God's secrets. That's what we call Gnosticism. Adam and Eve were duped into thinking that they could become like God by information, by some set of facts, some secret knowledge, rather than through a transformation, okay? A loving and grateful union with their creator in whose image they were made. What's more, because man and woman are not replicas of one another, the fallout from the first sin did not affect them in an identical manner. In response to their betrayal, of course, the Lord talks about Eve is going to suffer in childbirth and the earth is going to resist Adam's attempts to till it, right? But then he, he addresses both of them and he says, well, he says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he will lord it over you. In his work, Love and Responsibility, John Paul calls that woman whose desire shall be for her husband, a victim of, quote, pure sentimentality. Fallen woman finds herself prone to romanticizing and over-idealizing the opposite sex, often to her own detriment. She will crave the gift of the other so much that at times it will cause her to prematurely offer herself, 
often at the expense of her own dignity. Fallen woman, as it were, struggles with waiting to receive a gift. She wants that personal connection so much that at times she's been willing to compromise her very identity and can at times even risk inviting objectification. John Paul refers to her counterpart, fallen man, he who would lord it over her and view a woman merely as an object of sexual satisfaction as suffering from, quote, pure sensuality. So there's pure sentimentality, sort of on the feminine side, and pure sensuality on the masculine. In a sad compliment to the woman who struggles with waiting to receive his gift, he finds it nearly impossible to give that gift. His longing for sensual enjoyment is so strong that it literally inhibits his freedom to give. It inhibits his ability to master his desires and instead inclines him to take what he can. In both cases, fallen man and fallen woman tend to miss the full reality of the other and tend toward a dehumanization of the other in relationships. What is it about the differences between men and women that creates such a potentially toxic dynamic? Why do the consequences of original sin seem to play out in such an uneven way? To examine this question a little deeper, I just want to share a few insights from a modern saint and philosopher, Edith Stein, who understood the physical differences between man and woman to be an indicator, a symbol of some underlying spiritual differences that we tend to observe between the sexes. If we look at a woman's natural physical design, the most obvious fact about the female body is the capacity to bear new life. A woman's ability, literally, to grow and nurture another person in her own body. But persons are more than merely physical, and so how can such a fact be the basis for some sort of generalization about a human person? Well, that's just the point. If a person is a spiritual and physical unity, it doesn't make sense that women would merely be designed with an ability to nurture persons physically. Reason demands that nature would provide her with the spiritual and psychological gifts to adequately care for this new person. Motherhood doesn't end in the delivery room, if it were only that simple. <laughs> so regardless of whether a woman ever bears a child in her life, she has been given an interior outlook which is geared toward the development and nurture of another person. John Paul pointed out that because a woman is biologically designed for such, quote, unique contact with the new human being, she tends to manifest an attitude toward human beings, not only her own, toward her own child, but toward every human being, which profoundly marks her personality. And he says um, in his letter on the dignity and vocation of women that a woman tends to be, quote, more capable than men or women tend to be more capable than men of paying attention to another person. St. Edith Stein commented that it is a woman's emotions which make her especially able to pay attention to another person. As she puts it, to relate to a soul in its entire being. One glance at a child's face can often reveal more to a mother than if she were to ask a steady stream of questions. Somehow she can sense what's wrong, even if she can't yet explain it. Psychologists observe that women tend to be superior at picking up nonverbal cues and are better than men at recognizing facial differences. Sociologists have repeatedly found that women are faster and more accurate at identifying emotions just based on someone's face. Now, this ability seems invaluable just for the very practical purpose of a mother to try to figure out how a baby might feel and how to respond appropriately to his needs. And so just as women's bodies are designed with another person in mind, we find this to be a, but a hint of an even broader interior ability to pay attention to, to tune into and care for the persons they encounter. Women seem especially designed for relationship and might even be called person-oriented. 
for many of us, that interest goes way beyond babies. It can extend to kittens and puppies and plants and things that are small and helpless, and we are inspired to help them to develop. The great Fulton Sheen noted that while men tend to stand around chatting about things and ideas, women are much more inclined to stand around chatting about other people. We can do it for hours. Um, but does this mean women are incapable of talking about things and ideas? No, no. We can and we do. But this inclination or preference among women to converse about persons so frequently does reveal something about our inner nature. And so what we need to consider is this. In what way is a person different from a thing or an idea? Well, for one, a person is a concrete whole. There's nothing abstract about a person. When a mother takes care of a child, she doesn't have the luxury of caring for his physical needs one day and his psychological needs the next. She needs to relate to her child as a whole and in the present moment. She can't ignore or abstract from any of his needs. Imagine if I spent a whole day teaching my son to stack blocks or reading him stories but didn't change his diaper or feed him. That's not going to work. And some dads have tried this, and it's not good. What's important to remember is that a person is a multifaceted creature, and women are inclined and equipped to deal simultaneously with all of these facets. That's why many women excel at what we've termed multitasking. A woman is a natural multitasker precisely because she is person-oriented. She demonstrates an instinctive way of tuning into persons and to personal details to agree that most men don't share. Men are certainly capable of doing all of these things, but the majority of men tend to develop these abilities by way of learning and practice rather than just by instinct. And so if a woman's body indicates not only an exterior but an interior orientation toward the human person, am I implying that men could care less about other people? Of course not. But they do seem to have a less direct relationship to persons. And this too seems rooted in their unique physical structure. So let's talk about men. A man's body differs from a woman's, most notably in its size and strength. A man's capacity for physical labor indicates that he is designed not so much to receive and nurture a little person, but instead to act on the world, to work, to fight, to kill spiders. <laughs> and while this work is certainly done for the sake of persons, his immediate outlook tends to be less person-oriented and much more deed or object-oriented. I mentioned a moment ago that a woman's keen emotions help her to relate to persons, to sort of be aware of and sense the many needs of a single person at the same time. So much so, in fact, that ignoring certain aspects of someone's personality can actually be quite difficult for a woman. And here's where we can see the difference, one of the differences, a difference between the sexes. A man can more easily distance himself from the details of a situation in order to pursue a long-term goal beyond the situation. And this is a strength not so much of the emotions, but of the intellect. The intellect is really good at separating, at breaking things down in order to understand them. That's what it does. The emotions might sense the whole, but it is precisely our intellect which kind of zeroes in on understanding the part. It is the intellectual ability to abstract from the whole right, and to focus in on some aspect that informs the natural outlook of men. Another way that I like to describe it is that a man has an ability to pursue the future by disentangling his, himself from the emotional pull of the present moment. And I always like to think of a story when our, our family in our van, we had like four kids at the time, we got stuck in a snowbank. And the kids were scared, the babies were crying, I was trying to tend to everyone's needs and sort of calm everybody down in the moment. And I was getting a little miffed that my husband didn't seem to care that everyone was, was crying and freaking out. And I think it was just the Holy Spirit that reminded me that 
The reason he was standing outside of the car, seemingly not caring, was that he was trying, he, he had shut us all out, and he was trying to figure out a way to get us out of the snowbank. So we, we, we needed both, right? We needed both at the time. We needed to deal with the present and the future. But I'm thinking, how can he not hear the screaming? Does he not see the tears? You know, does he not notice? Um, he did, but he was very, he was, he was able to block it out. And I mean, when you think about a father, we expect a father to leave the intimacy of home and family day after day to trudge off to work or to march off to battle. And certainly we know there are mothers that do this, but nobody ever seems to question or debate that a dad is going to do it. How else could a man spend five hours straight watching football or playing video games, right? And actually, it's with sports that I noticed one of the reasons that I do, I have learned to enjoy watching sports with my husband, but one struggle that I have is that I have a hard time abstracting from um, all of the details of the athletes. If I know that there's an athlete that did something immoral or was in the news for something, I, I can't abstract from that and just watch the game. And he's kind of like, I wish you would stop finding out all these things. I wish you would stop reading. I don't want to talk about, see, I thought I could bond with him by talking about the athletes, but that's not, that's not what he wanted. <laughs> he just wanted to enjoy the game, right? So he could just block out that stuff enjoy the game so um, and appreciate their talent on the sports field okay so men often rely upon their ability to compartmentalize to shut down their emotions in order to accomplish important tasks and this can be an invaluable skill and a compliment to a woman's gifts and so I'm in no way suggesting that men don't care for persons or don't have emotions it's simply that men tend to develop their personal skills and their ability to relate emotionally by way of learning and practice rather than by instinct. Nor am I suggesting that women don't have intellects. But it's not simply a woman, it's, it's not a woman's intellect which sort of powers her ability to relate to persons. Okay, and as a matter of fact, Edith Stein highly recommends intellectual work for women precisely to counterbalance her powerful emotional life and just sort of keep her grounded in reality. Um, so I hope it's obvious that these masculine and feminine orientations toward the object and toward the person are meant to complement one another. It has been said that while men tend to gravitate toward being specialists, it is women who are the great universalists. The fact remains that the world needs both. And again, these are generalizations. If I'm going to draw the distinction, or if Edith Stein is going to draw the distinction between the masculine and the feminine as sort of an orientation toward the abstract versus the concrete, we all have to, to integrate both of these aspects. You can't be a human being if you can't think abstractly, right? If you can't reflect and you're just oriented toward the concrete, you're, you're an animal, right? But if all you do is abstract and you don't have any feelings, you're a scary monster, right? So a human is both, right? But it tends to be the case that women integrate those masculine and feminine dimensions with a certain bias, and men tend to orient those, or to integrate those orientations um, to a slightly different degree, okay, leaning toward one side. But each of us is an individual, and so these are, these are generalizations, okay? Um, but what we can't ignore is what happens when these qualities, these good qualities, become warped and twisted due to sin. Both men and women have allowed sin to affect their natural gifts, allowing these good and distinctive qualities to become warped and destructive. It is well known that a man's particular abilities to sort of specialize and abstract can lead him to disengage from personal relationships, to cut himself off from the persons in his life. His drive toward accomplishment and work can sometimes degenerate into an exploitation of the world, a meaningless piling up of money, and often an objectification of women. A man's worst fault is summed up in a single phrase, he tends to treat persons like objects. Now, a woman's natural concern for other persons, that doesn't go away, but it can get out of control and it can degenerate into an unbounded concern with the business of others, with the juicy details of people's lives, people that they might not even know very well. It's not an accident that women are most often perpetrators of gossip. Sometimes this personal orientation uh, propels a woman to kind of insert herself into the lives of others and draw satisfaction from clinging to those who need her, right? It can make a woman feel very good to be needed. 
So women at their worst gain a real sense of importance through involvement in other people's lives. Furthermore, I mentioned earlier that women tend to have a gift of multitasking. Um, but this gift can sort of be affected by sin as well. A woman can too easily make the mistake of having her hand in too many things at once, okay, stretching herself too thin, and that puts her in danger of living at a superficial level. Where a man might get totally lost in his project, okay, sometimes a woman has her hand in so many things that she doesn't enter very deeply into any one thing. So they each have these risks. Perhaps the greatest source of struggle for uh, the feminine uh, in dealing with sin is what I previously described as the source of her strength, her emotions. Without deliberate self-control, her emotions can become her worst enemy. And it's all too easy for women to become obsessed with relationships and slaves to moods. Alice von Hildebrand said, if all the tears shed by women had been collected since the beginning of the world, they would compete with the sea. The tears shed by men might fill a pond of modest size. <laughs> this is not to suggest that all tears are bad, but each of us needs to reflect on how many of our tears have been those of self-pity, of wounded vanity, or these are the worst kind of tears, of sorrow at imagined offenses. Okay, women have an uncanny ability to sort of read too much into things, okay, to create fantasy worlds. And actually, there is a reason that women are good at creating fantasy worlds, and there's a good reason. A mother needs to be able to use her imagination to recognize and to develop the potential in her child. She needs to see something that isn't quite there yet to help bring it to development. So it, it actually is a gift. But... The problem comes when this kind of idealizing is applied to others around her, particularly men, and it becomes unhinged from reality. Okay, so th this is where we get into to danger on both sides. Um, so I want to repeat again what God says to the woman after the first sin. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall lord it over you. At first it might have sounded a little bit like men have simply become the bad guys, and women are simply going to be the innocent victims of their domination. But on closer examination, I hope we can see that each side plays a destructive role quite appropriate to their respective sexual differences. The man, already object-oriented by nature, will no longer be able to distinguish the woman from among the world of objects and will be tempted to use and abuse her accordingly. But the woman, already person-oriented by nature, already hardwired for fostering relationships, will crave these relationships at any cost. She will contribute to this new distorted relationship of sinful man and woman by accepting this pattern which robs her of her dignity. Her desire for love will lead her at times to encourage and arouse his lustful desire for her. And when she succeeds, the woman as seductress is then treated as an object, robbed of her dignity, and often finds herself willing to put up with it out of fear, right? Fear of losing him, fear for her child's welfare. It's interesting that in the world of sin, giving has been replaced with taking, and trust has been replaced with fear. One author notes, whether we identify love with the sexual impulse like the man, or with dazzling emotions like the woman. In either scenario, we tend to treat this reduced version of love as an absolute that forces itself upon us and deprives us of any free initiative. Okay, it, when you feel forced, you're not free anymore. Okay, so we must notice here that this new relationship between man and woman at its heart eats away at that uniqueness that once set them apart from the animals, which we talked about last week, right? That freedom, which made living in an intimate relationship with God and with one another even possible. Instead, they're tending toward a reduced version of love by which they relate as objects motivated by desire, whether it's physical or emotional, while failing to appreciate the fullness of one another's interior dimensions. And so um, the final talk, whenever that's going to happen, 
Um, I want to examine, you know, usually this basically sets up the scenario in the theology of the body, which applies to so many things. The final section um, applies all of this to the issue of contraception, okay? And I think it's hopefully becoming clear how, how it applies, right? Objectifying the other, allowing oneself to be objectified out of fear, hanging onto the relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Um, unwillingness to accept the other in their fullness, right? Ever taking versus receiving, all of these things. But there's so many other applications, and in particular for um, a life as a college student, I wanted to examine some other specific ways in which young men and women tend to sabotage their relationships. And so in the next talk, I want to address three specific areas, uh, dressing, dating, and our modern forms of disembodied communication. So um, I want to kind of apply all of this to those three issues. And at the same time, I do want to reflect upon the grace of redemption, okay, and how it can work to heal the wounds of sin and to really restore man and woman to the freedom of the gift, right? Because if these wounds are the result of sin and if this new relationship of sort of domination and objectification are a result of sin, then we're not beyond hope, right? Because Christ came to heal sins. So that's not how a man and woman relationship is supposed to be. Um, and so grace is there to help us, grace and virtue. So um, I'd like to sort of save some of that specific application for the next time. But if anybody has questions or comments now just on sort of this whole dynamic of gift and how it became replaced with taking and objectification, um, that would be great. So... That's all. So any questions or, or thoughts? I felt like I had a few other things pop into my head that I was going to talk about. Yes. I think that's a great point. I mean, obviously nobody can, you know, you can't help your birth order, your place in the family, your number of siblings, but I, it's no accident, certainly, that sexual difference is in, intimately involved in every single one of our lives, right? It doesn't mean all of us are called to marriage, but that we each are born into an embodied, intimate environment where there is sexual difference, right, in terms of mother and father. And so definitely we are supposed to be exposed to that balance. Um, but it's interesting, and I've even talked to people who, who had brothers, and they just seemed to have an easier time relating to men appropriately later in life, and others that didn't. And one thing I think that's important to keep in mind is that everybody is going to have different areas in which they have strengths and weaknesses, right? And what are we called to do with our weaknesses? We're called to develop virtues to sort of shore them up. And so anything that we admire as a virtue let's say it seems to be a particularly masculine kind of virtue, you know, you don't just admire it, you need, to str you need to strive for it too, and vice versa. It doesn't mean that, you know, my husband needs to glory in the fact that he can ignore all the crying. Like, he, he knows that he needs to, to respond and to, and to, even when he doesn't feel like it, you know, tend to people that are crying and whining. But what, one interesting thing is when you, it was pointed out to me that as you grow in holiness, like when you think of, you know, you tend to, you do tend to even out. When you think of, about like Catherine of Siena, right? She's always known for the sort of, you know, masculine, so to speak, boldness of, of getting the Pope back to Rome, right? Or somebody like St. John of the Cross who, you know, wrote and spoke with such, in a sense, feminine tenderness. So that the holier you grow, you will. You won't just sort of admire the virtues of the other. You will imitate the virtues of the other as best that you can. So I think definitely the relationships in our life 
can influence those things. But definitely, it does start with mom and dad. And um, one author had pointed out that, you know, sure, we look to our the parent that is the same sex as us for a lot of imitation and identification, but then how do we look at the other? Well, you know, a, a son learns from his father how to treat women, but a, a daughter learns from her father and his treatment of their mother and herself how to be treated, right? What to expect. And so there's so many lessons that we learn from being exposed to the same and opposite genders that, that those relationships are critical. So again, yes, we're always called to be moving forward in virtue and growing in holiness and um, not just accepting, okay, I'm different. You know, if, it, if examining the differences helps you to identify some of your strengths and weaknesses, it doesn't mean, okay, that's who I am, right? If we see a shortcoming or an area that we're tending toward um, vice rather than virtue, that's when we have to force ourselves, right? And through habit, try to, try to change those. Does it make sense? This is crazy? Okay, I don't know. Well, it's very controversial to, to talk about the things that I just said. <laughs> Probably wouldn't go over well in other places because, you know, what, what is the line that we hear today, right? If you say the word difference, you're immediately saying what? Difference is inequality. You just pointed out some differences. You're saying that men and women aren't equal. They're not identical. They're not replicas, right? So that means one of them is human and one isn't, right? No, okay, because part our humanity has to do with, right, that intellect and that freedom and that capacity for relationship that we talked about last week. And all of those things are there. You know, and even when you talk about individual people, right, every single individual embodied person, everybody's, everyone's body looks a little different, so it's going to be a reflection of, you know, everyone's interior dimension is a little bit different, but we're all human. Okay, so sort of accepting that difference doesn't imply inequality is, a, is not accepted in most places. Actually, there's some, a group of feminists that called themselves the difference feminists because they were some of the first sort of, they consider themselves radical feminists, but they were willing to finally admit that men and women tend to have differences that are deeper than just skin deep. Um, but here's the problem. Well, for example, they talked about girls and observing them in schools, and they said that they, they observed them playing um, a, like kickball or something with the boys. And what they noted about the girls was that if somebody like fell or tripped or had a bad kick or started crying, the girls um, were more inclined to sort of break the rules for the sake of the kids' feelings. On the other hand, they found that the boys weren't into that and really just wanted to stick to the rules. And that boys were capable of playing a game like kickball or baseball or whatever, like for hours on end, because they continuously stuck to the rules. And so they said that the girls were demonstrating what they called an ethics of care, and the boys were exhibiting what they called an ethics of justice. And I hope we can all see that. I think the two really work together well. We kind of need a balance. But what the difference feminists decided was that the ethics of care was superior to the ethics of justice. <laughs> so again, that was close, right? Recognizing a difference, but then saying, OK, there is a difference. It's just that the women's difference makes them better, right? And that's, you know, that doesn't help anybody. So, um, And they did found that the, find that the girls' games, when they were just together, didn't actually last very long. So, go figure. Yes? Interesting. I could talk all night about headship, but I'll focus just on one element of that. Um, because, of course, we do see, you know, in St. Paul, right, when he says um, 
you know, women, women wives, you, you are to, you know, submit yourself to your husbands um, and, and, you know, sort of in a sense saying, okay, man is the head, woman is like the body. And so, but I think for me, the best way of explaining that and understanding that is, again, how is a man called to be head, to be head, to be head, uh, according to St. Paul, right? He says you have to do it like Christ. Like, how did Christ, how did Christ give life to the church, right? He laid down his life, right? So that ultimately the man as head is called to give through service, right? To lay, to lay down his life, to work his tail off, right? Now, we're back to this idea of gift, if a man is called to give, 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 what is a woman supposed to do? What is her response to that supposed to be? If there's a giving, there has to be what to make it complete? Receptivity. Now, again, receptivity can be really hard, right? Um, but in a sense, um, it's, it's very intriguing. <laughs> woman, in many ways, as she is receptive in the sense of receiving a child, nurturing, she has certain skills. And so I'll just make two points here. On the one hand, people might say, oh, a man has an ability to lead. I would almost say a woman has a really cool ability to be led. And what I mean by that is because a woman is so person-oriented, she cares about relationships so much, she is often willing to interest herself in things that normally she probably wouldn't care about, but she does it for the sake of the relationship. Like, I know a ton about the Clone Wars and Legos and football and stuff that I, I might not have cared as much about if I didn't care about my relationship with my husband and having three, now four, sons, okay? It's harder for a man to do that. If a man is just really not interested in something, it's really hard for him to fake it. He just because he's interested in things, right? And if this thing isn't interesting him, or if he feels like it's it's wrong-headed, like it's harder for him to get on board. A woman has an ability, an inbuilt ability, to get on board with things that she might not have otherwise wanted to get on board with if it weren't for that personal interest drawing her in. So I think one thing we fail to look at is that women have a unique gift of accepting that leadership. And so that's one of the reasons why that dynamic works. The second reason that I wanted to talk about is how men and women experience love. I'm going to talk about this in the next talk, but just a hint. Because men and women, because of this sort of man with his outward doing, right? Man is meant to work. He does things. I'll back up a little bit. At the beginning of my talk last week, I talked about there's sort of two extreme attitudes toward the body. The body is either something I have or something I am. Both of those extremes aren't right, right? You're not simply your body. You're more that sort of reductionist. You don't simply have a body because that says my body's an instrument. I can do whatever I want. But men do tend to gravitate more toward the instrument, right? Men don't spend time in front of the mirror. I mean, they do a little bit, right? But not as much as women do, right? It's like, ah, oh, my body, whatever. I do stuff with it, okay? There's dangers there, okay? Women, right? Women don't tend to struggle to, to wonder whether or not they're women, right? Men wonder, am I a man? Have I proved it? Right? Men want to prove their manhood. It's not immediately evident to them that they're a man. Women are reminded from, like, very early age that they're a woman, and their body reminds them all the time. So you don't see women, like, right, going out and proving it. They kind of accept it. Sometimes they identify too much with their body, though, and so they're, they get vain or a personal comment about their body crushes them like it won't do for a man. The point here is men and women experience affirmation in different ways. If you tell a woman she looks beautiful and you mean it, it's usually going to succeed in, in making her feel really good and affirmed. If you tell a guy he just looks so handsome, I mean, he might like that, but what's going to truly affirm and make that guy feel really good? Chances are if you admire something that he's done or that he said, right? You admire his deeds, that's what he identifies with. His body is an instrument that he accomplishes deeds with. If you admire his deeds, that affirms the man. So in this relationship, right, where the man is doing things for the, for the woman, women crave gifts, right? We're receivers. We want gifts. We want you to do stuff for us, okay? Now, men, it doesn't mean we don't do stuff for men. Believe me, I do a lot, okay? But, but... All of the dishes, all of the sleepless nights with the babies, all of the things that I do combined don't affirm my husband's identity 
as much as when I express gratitude and appreciation and admiration for all the stuff he's done for me. When I thank him, when I notice, when I appreciate, when I'm not mean and snarky, like when I do that, that's actually, that's how he experiences love. Women experience love by being given gifts. Men experience being loved by giving gifts and have those gifts being received gratefully. So there is this different way, and it has to do with the different ways in which they understand who they are as an embodied person, that they experience love. And I think in a relationship, when headship and submission are understood as giving and receiving gratefully, it can be really healthy. I still don't think it means they're not identical. It's just that in a gift dynamic, you have to have both, right? What good is a giver without a receiver? And so I'm not, I'm not going to stand up there and say, therefore, men are better, because it's actually really hard to do both, right? So I still think that it is, their parts are of equal value, but they are definitely distinct. And marriage counselors, I talked to this couple, they were counselors, and they had seen hundreds of troubled marriages over the years. And they said that not a single husband that they ever counseled said that he felt that he was respected by his wife. And when I heard that, I thought, ah, respect. Men want to be respected. What does that mean? It means you appreciate what they do, what they say. That's how they interpret respect. So for a man, in many ways, to be respected is to feel loved. For a woman, that's not the case. We do need respect, but we totally distinguish it from love. I was probably the most respected person in my college, but I didn't have a boyfriend. Right? So it's not the same, right? And I do want my husband's respect. I deserve it. But I still want him to bring me flowers and gifts, right? So, so in a sense, um, seeing that that was at the core, and it doesn't mean that some of those men were jerks and whatever. It, you know, I'm not judging the women for the failure of those relationships. But in other words, the fact that not a single couple in crisis that they counseled did a husband say, I feel respected by my wife. In other words, that is a huge essential part of a husband of a successful husband-wife relationship is that that husband is experiencing that appreciation and respect even if he's not doing it perfectly cuz who can, right? Who can give perfectly all the time? So anyway, that's very short getting at that, but just if you can understand again, headship as tyranny and submission is domination, that's like quoting the devil, right? Or not the devil, but that's after Adam and Eve sinned when God said, your desire shall be for your husband, he will lord it over you. This is like sort of a master-slave relationship. That's the result of sin, right? And so we can't understand that to be the proper dynamic. So when St. Paul talks about headship and submission, he's not talking about the same dynamic. He's talking about a new dynamic. And so, of course, he brings in Christ. Um, but I think the gift, understanding of giving and receiving can be very fruitful in applying to that topic. And um, some of those things we'll even bring in a little bit, a little bit next week, um, even even in dating um, that issue. Thank you.